The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Uh, it's very nice to be back. I was here about a year ago, I think. I did a Saturday day long and then the Dharma talk on Sunday. And yesterday I also did a day-long program. It was an introduction to Vajrayana Buddhism for those who are not familiar with Vajrayana Buddhism. And this morning uh, I've been invited back to do the Dharma talk again. Um, I want to do a Dharma talk this time that I'm titling How to Internalize Dharma, which to me is something very, very important. Uh, actually, it's the first time I'm doing this Dharma talk. It's a new Dharma talk for me, so we'll see how it goes. Before I begin my Dharma talk, I want to announce I have a new book which came out last spring, so it was after I was here last year. It's called Religious Diversity, What's the Problem? <laughs> Buddhist Advice for Flourishing with Religious Diversity. Uh, there are very, very few books written by Buddhist teachers on religious diversity and what uh, Buddhist sensibilities and Buddhist practice and Buddhist understanding could contribute to coping with religious diversity in a more sane way. And my basic point, actually, is that, of course, there's religious diversity. Why would you expect it to be different? Uh, so many people who talk about religious diversity try to somehow get rid of all the differences between people and somehow say we're all the same. And they also tend to say... There's a very strong prejudice that many, many people have. Unless you're like me, you're not okay. It's a very strong prejudice, isn't it? Just look around at our society. If you're different, there's something wrong with you. Uh, and my premise is that, of course, there's religious diversity. Why would we expect it to be different? And diversity is normal and natural, both culturally and in the natural world. One of the points I make is that uh, monocultures don't thrive very well. So if uh, I have three copies of it here that are for sale, and if you want to look at it later. But that's not my Dharma talk, so let's get going on the Dharma talk. Uh, the Dharma talk is titled, How to Internalize Dharma. Um, and I, I'm giving this talk because I think that very often um, there are certain, there's certain helpful advice about how to, how to make Dharma actually living dharma that's with us 24-7. Because a lot of people, you know, practice a little bit. They come once a week, um, maybe not quite once a week. They, they are interested in dharma. But it hasn't become something that's in our blood system, in our circulatory system. It hasn't become something that's totally integrated into our system so that when something picks us, our first response is a dharmic response. How do we get to the point where when something annoys us, instead of just having reacting habitually, we will react in a dharmic fashion, when dharma is that self-existing in our system, that it's our everyday response to whatever we encounter in our daily lives. That's what I want to talk about. Um, <clears throat> so how to internalize the Dharma. Uh, there's a lot of discussion of that in my tradition, though I don't think it's always been taught all that well or all that thoroughly. And that uh, internalizing the Dharma. So what first, what are we doing? 
With dharma, eventually, if we're successful dharma practitioners, we undo or overwhelm the karmic habitual patterns of reactiveness that we have been cultivating actually all our lives. It's the brainwashing that was taught to us by our culture. Most of us didn't grow up as Buddhists, so we weren't. That's how, not how we were taught when we were two, how to react to the world. Uh, we have a lot of habitual patterns that are very, very tightly wound up in us. And traditional Buddhism, of course, would say that those patterns are karmically habituated. They've been with us from beginningless time. That's why we've been reborn in a samsaric confused state time after time after time because that's like our default state, to be aggressive, to be filled with desire, to ignore a lot. That's our default state. That's how we come into the world. And most of the time, that's what our culture and our early training also encourages. We are taught that not only is it okay to have a lot of aggression and to have a lot of desire and to just uh, ignore a lot of things. We're taught there's no other way to live. If you don't live that way, you'll just get stumped out in the herd. That's all there is to it. And Dharma is about saying, no, that isn't the necessary way to live. There is a way to live that's much more flexible, much less reactive, Uh, much more accommodating, much more cheerful. And we can internalize, we can undo those habitual patterns, those ageless habitual patterns, those ageless karmic habitual patterns. We can gradually undo those, not by fighting with them. That doesn't work very well. Trying to fight those ageless karmic patterns usually just doesn't work very well. But there are ways that they wear out that if we do other things, they wear out. So how do we internalize the Dharma? As I started to say in my tradition, this is talked about a lot, it's called the three prajna principles, or the three prajna practices. Now prajna is a Sanskrit word for, um, it's a word that often is translated as knowledge or wisdom. But you have to understand that wisdom in the Buddhist tradition is not a body of information. It's not passing the text and passing the test and getting your degree. Wisdom is knowing how to be, how to think out of the box on the spot. So that can't be a set of programmed reactions that we've learned. It has to be something um, much deeper than that and in a way much more intuitive, much more self-existing, not bound up with grasping, you know, what, what is the habitually correct answer to this. So the three prajna principles which I want to talk about are hearing first, contemplating second, and meditating in that order. And I think what's wrong with a lot of very elementary dharma training uh, is that people put a lot of emphasis on meditating. You know, especially Western Buddhists place a lot of emphasis on meditating, as if meditation is the heart of Buddhism, which isn't necessarily true. A lot of people have pointed out that probably most Buddhists don't meditate. And still, they're Buddhists, and often they have more sane reactions to everyday life problems than many of us do. 
because they have internalized certain Buddhist sensibilities, certain Buddhist uh, ways of being in the world. They have internalized them. So another way of talking about what I'm talking about is internalizing dharma. How do we internalize this? Meditation, of course, as most Westerners and as also many Asian teachers present Buddhism, meditation is, of course, necessary. It's an essential discipline. But it's not the whole thing. Um, It's not necessarily the whole thing. We've all met people who've meditated a lot, but they aren't very nice. (laughs) Brings chuckles, so you know what I'm talking about. And sometimes people will say when they're new to Dharma, we want to be careful we don't give this impression. When they're new to a Dharma setting and they look around, especially at some of the senior people who are, um, you know, not very nice, not very friendly, opinionated. This is one of the things that senior Buddhist people really get into, being opinionated. There's nothing that's more anti-Dharma than being strongly opinionated than being ideological, than being fixated. This is the truth. Uh, if you think something, you know, if you're different from that, you're on the wrong track. And people will look around at some of those, um, you know, people who uh, have been around a while and maybe have positions, and they say, ooh, if that's what I'm going to turn out to be like, I don't even want to get involved in this meditation thing. So meditation by itself is, of course, necessary and very helpful. And, you know, if done correctly for a very long period of time, meditation probably is enough. It probably does get you to that flexible, gentle, non-ideological state of mind that I praise so highly. Probably does work. But I think there are ways uh, to make the process a lot easier which are to work much, much more with the first two prajna principles, which are hearing and contemplating. Hearing involves, of course, you know, we all know what hearing is. It means listening to dharma. It means listening to dharma talks. It means not only listening to dharma talks, it means reading books. It means... There is already a lot of dharma out there. There's already a lot of very good dharma discourse in books and in the various media. There's already a lot of good dharma discourse. Why not take advantage of it? Why think I have to reinvent the wheel myself? Are you that smart? Why, why say, well, the teachers told me that everything is within, all wisdom is within, So I don't need to study. I don't need a teacher. I don't need a teacher. I refuse to follow a teacher. I'm going to do it by myself. Uh, Why bother to do that? That's the hard way. Why do that? So the first prajna principle of hearing, listening. Now, you know, hearing, listening, reading books, that's what I've mentioned thus far. But actually there's a lot more to it than that. One of the most important dimensions of hearing is getting the Dharma terminology straight. There's a lot of Dharma language. There's terms like suffering and attachment and greed. 
nirvana. There's a lot of Dharma terms. And a large part of hearing the Dharma is getting the language straight, actually knowing what the words mean, which often takes a long time. The first time people hear Dharma, it often doesn't make any sense at all. So you have to go back and hear it again. Most of us have to hear Dharma many, many, many times before it starts to sink in. And that's just the fact of the matter. That's just the way it is. Most of us have to hear Dharma over and over and over before it starts to sink in, before it starts to penetrate our opinionatedness and our um, resistance. And so that's a very, very important discipline. I'm not saying that until we've heard everything completely, we can't contemplate and we can't meditate. But I am saying hearing, getting the terminology straight, knowing what the terms mean, being able to explain them somewhat adequately to your friends, that's a real test. Often we think, oh, I understand what that teacher is saying. And then you go home and your partner, who is very skeptical about Dharma, says, well, what did, you, what did you learn today? And you try to explain it and it doesn't go so well. Well, that's okay. That's the way it is for all of us for a long, long time. We think we understand and at some level we do. But we haven't internalized it to the point where we can explain a term like nirvana or the big one, I think, egolessness, anatta lack of a permanent abiding self, which strikes most people for a long time as just sheer nonsense. I've known, I've had, I've worked with students who were pretty far along the path, moving towards starting to do Vajrayana disciplines themselves, who absolutely refused to listen to teachings on egolessness, because that made no sense. And since it made no sense, they were going to reject it. They were still going to get enlightened, but they were going to reject some of the most basic Dharma teachings, but I'm still going to get enlightened. It doesn't work very well to bring in our own version of wisdom and knowledge and opinionatedness and pick and choose. Well, I'll accept this of Dharma, but I reject that. Now, it's okay after we've done our own work, after we've done our own deep contemplation, to maybe reject some things that have been, um, many Buddhists have believed in for a long time. But then one still has a very soft, flexible way of working with that concept. And by a soft, flexible way of working with the concept, I have in mind particularly notion of rebirth, which is very hard for modern Westerners to believe in. And I myself don't believe in it in that way but I also don't reject it. So that state of mind, I think this is the end result of meditation actually, a state of mind of being non-opinionated. <clears throat> and that means neither accepting nor rejecting, especially certain things like rebirth. Oh, that's the only Buddhist term for me that is at that level of, uh, well, I don't accept it, but I don't reject it either. Terms like egolessness, nirvana, um, they're like second nature to me, to use those terms. That's second nature. Uh, I've explained them many times. I've taught them to, you know, if you're a university professor of Buddhism, 
you've taught Dharma to hundreds of students and watched about 75% of them say, you know what, that doesn't make any sense. And so they learn the information because they have to pass the test, but that doesn't do a lot of good. So hearing the Dharma is getting the terminology straight, knowing what the basic terms mean, getting the Dharma straight, some of the most helpful things that are not things that people like to do in modern pedagogy, but some of the things that work the best to get through the hearing phase of internalizing the Dharma is repetition. You know, um, Dharma, learning Dharma is very repetitious. You can learn to sit on your fanny and put your hands in the right posture and sort of maybe follow your breath very quickly. Why do I have to do it over and over and over? Why isn't once enough? Well, as one of my teachers once said, if we could assimilate the Dharma, if we could assimilate the wisdom the Buddha taught in an hour or two, it probably wouldn't be worth very much. Is anything we can learn thoroughly in an hour or two really all that important? Probably not. And I would add that to a month or two, a year or two, maybe even a decade or two. To truly internalize the Dharma takes a long time. I don't know how long, but I've been at it 40 years and I don't feel like I've done it so that the point I can stop. Sorry, but that's just the way it is. That's not a problem. It's not a problem that we don't know everything yet and that there's still more to learn. Why is that a problem? Why do we think we need to know everything or have all the problems solved or know exactly what nirvana is? Why do we, why do we have that attitude? Why are we so acquisitive and so grasping that we think we have to get it all immediately? So repetition is one thing that's very important to hearing the Dharma, taking the time it's going to take. The other thing that people don't like to hear, they don't like it when I say this, but I always say it anyway, memorization. Memorization. Something people just don't want to do today. They want to say, well, I'll just look it up on the internet. You can clack, you know, type in nirvana in google.com and you get a halfway decent Wikipedia article. That's a million miles from having internalized the Dharma. So memorization, Buddhism is full of lists, especially early Buddhism is full of lists. The Buddha taught in terms of lists. And, you know, people often resent repetition the polytexts are very repetitious. That's why a lot of modern people don't like to read them. They're, they're repetitious and they're full of lists. And people very quickly get bored with lists. Well, I'm sorry, but there's a lot of virtue in lists and there's a lot of virtue in memorizing lists. If you're stuck in traffic, it would be much more helpful to know what the Four Noble Truths are than to have to take the time to look them up on your iPhone before you fly into Raid Road. It's very, very useful to memorize a lot of Dharma. Then it's yours. Then it's here. Then it's always available. And it's not something that's like a foreign body of knowledge. It's here 
It's not information, it's internalized wisdom. It's always available. So I highly advocate, you know, going and listening to a lot of Dharma teachings, reading a lot of books, but reading books very slowly and contemplatively. In the study group which I lead, we were always reading a book. And we usually read, we, we, every, we meet once a week, we always have book discussion, and we read maybe five to the most, ten pages a week. That's enough. So get good Dharma books, of which there are many, many now, and read them very slowly and contemplatively. Just inhaling a book, um, it's fine, but you won't remember it a month later. You'll have to go look it up again anyway. So reading slowly and contemplatively. So there's that word, contemplatively. What do I mean by contemplation? And that's the discipline that I think is really, really missing in a lot of Buddhist training. That's the discipline of continually asking, what does this mean? You know, not do I agree with it. It isn't relevant whether you agree with a speaker or not. It's totally irrelevant whether you agree with what I'm saying. I don't care in the least. I do care if you understand what I'm saying. And if you understand what I'm saying, you won't argue with me. You might say, well, that's not, you might disagree. You might say, well, that's not how it feels to me. But there'll be no need to argue with me because it's irrelevant whether we agree with other people or not. The key question is, well, do we understand what they're saying? So contemplation is the ceaseless curiosity to be reading in a Dharma book and to ask the question, well, what does this really mean? What would it feel like inside if I really understood what this teacher is saying? Does it apply to my life? Would it change my life if I had internalized this perspective? Does it seem right on? Does it not seem right on? And not coming to quick decisions to answer that question, but to contemplate ceaselessly. Not necessarily while one is on the cushion, working with a reference point and learning to stabilize one's mind. Contemplation here, as I'm describing it, is in many ways much more of a vipassana discipline, much more a discipline of insight, or discipline pursuit of insight. That's what you have to do to, in a disciplined way, pursue insight. Uh, insight is not about having the right answer. Insight is about knowing what this term might mean and how it might affect oneself. So um, contemplation, in my view, is the uh, missing ingredient in a lot of Dharma study. So a discipline, how does one actually do contemplation? Um, Usually it's very good to have a book or a text or a talk as kind of a foundation or a guide. And then you can take phrases in that text and contemplate the meaning of the phrases Search out, be very curious to search out what do these phrases, what do these sentences mean? What is this teacher trying to say? And take it inward. So contemplation is also very much introspection. It's turning over and over again and again in our minds. 
what I'm learning, what I'm trying to understand, just turning it over and over in our minds. And I think the problem with so many of us in this culture is that we're very grasping for answers. We always want answers. Questions are too troubling because questions imply uncertainty. Being comfortable with uncertainty is a huge part of internalizing dharma. Being comfortable with uncertainty. Um, being curious. You know, people just don't like curiosity. Curiosity also implies uncertainty. When we are certain about things, we no longer need to be curious. We no longer need to ask questions. And it's always that certainty that people are grasping for. That's what religious fundamentalism is, is grasping for certainty. Uh, as I was taught as a child, I was taught to repeat all the right phrases. I'm sure some of you know what they are. Followed by, this is most certainly true. That's the opposite of a dharmic state of mind. It's absolutely 100% the opposite of being a dharma practitioner or of having internalized the dharma. A dharma practitioner never has to be opinionated, never has to be ideological, never has to be self-righteous, never has to be too certain that I know which end is up. Well, I, I think I do. I've been at it a long time. I kind of think I know which end is up. But maybe tomorrow something new will dawn on me. That willingness for something new to dawn on us, that's a wonderful feeling. What could be better than being prepared for something new to dawn on us? Is there anything better than that? Why would we want to have eliminated the possibility that we might have a deeper level of insight into the meaning of egolessness tomorrow or this afternoon? That shouldn't be a problem. So to do a contemplative work, you know, we often start with having a talk or a phrase or a text. There are lots of key Buddhist texts. Most of us have Buddhist liturgies that we use for our practice. If we don't, uh, we can get them. But looking at the words of those liturgies we use every day and taking their meanings into heart, contemplating them, um, I think that's the missing ingredient for really internalizing the Dharma. And when you've internalized the Dharma, it's actually very easy to teach it or to at least explain it to your friends and your family and the people who give you such a hard time for being a practitioner or being a Buddhist and say, why, do you, why in the world do you waste all your time sitting on your butt? Why don't you get out there and save the world? Wouldn't it be much more useful if instead of spending all that time sitting on your butt, you did some good deeds? Isn't that all just self-indulgent, navel-gazing, a waste of time? If you truly internalize the Dharma, you can explain on an everyday level to your friends and your family why that's not the case. Or if you can't explain it to them, it won't frustrate you and you'll just be able to say to them, well... Maybe someday you'll get it, but I'm not going to argue with you at this point. Uh, you know, because arguing about Dharma with people who don't agree with us, what is more useless than that? <clears throat> arguing about religion, what is more 
enervating and useful and counterproductive than arguing about religion. I don't know why some people think that's a family sport. <laughs> no, something we do at, on holidays, or why people dread holidays, because we're going to have to argue with our families. Well, don't, don't argue with them. Just maintain an easy, relaxed state of mind, a fully dharmic state of mind, and listen to what people say and try to understand them. And then when they bug you, just say, well, you know, you have your way and I have mine and we'll just have to leave it at that because I'm not going to argue with you. So contemplating, um, there's a tremendous virtue in contemplation and I think people don't spend anywhere nearly enough time doing it. Though I also want to say we do have our meditation disciplines and meditation is can be different from contemplation. Uh, Meditation, samadhi, uh, I'm almost out of time, and you all have had a lot of meditation instruction, so I didn't intend to spend a lot of time talking about meditation, because you all do that. You come here, you've just done it for 40 minutes, you have meditation teachers. If I had anything to add to what you already do, it was to say some things about the importance of hearing, of memorizing, of repeating, and the importance of always asking questions and maintaining curiosity, not needing answers, not grasping for answers, even dharmic answers. Um, Meditating, samadhi. One of the things I emphasize with samadhi or meditation is that the fundamental meaning of samadhi is non-distraction. What is it that we're cultivating when we sit here? Um, people have a lot of different answers to that, but I would say fundamentally it's non-distraction. Not to get lost in our thoughts that come up. Yes, thoughts will come up. People are starting to begin to realize that with meditation, yes, we have thoughts. Inevitably that happens. That's not the problem. Giving in to distraction, that's a big problem. Because what happens when we give in to distraction? We take our thoughts seriously. Your thought comes along knocking on the inside of your head and says, I'm here, pay attention to me. And you say, yeah, you're important. Yeah, I'll pay attention to you. You must be true because I thought you. (laughs) That's the problem. That's a big problem. Taking one's thoughts seriously in that way is a very big problem. And non-distraction is learning how just not to do that. Of course thoughts come up. Don't give in to them. My teacher talks about that as the stickiness. Don't give in to the stickiness. That they like to you know, kind of grab you like Velcro and take you along. Just don't give in to that. And that's why we use a reference point. And most of you have probably been taught to use breathing as the reference point one way or another. I don't need to give you instruction on that, and I don't want to contradict what other teachers you may have studied with, but that's why we use a reference point. The purpose of the reference point of breathing or whatever it is is to have something that becomes gradually a self-existing little alarm clock. A self-existing little alarm clock that goes off and reminds you you can say goodbye to your thoughts. Hello. It's very important in meditation to acknowledge your thoughts. Hello. But then immediately, 
say goodbye. Bye-bye. As many meditation teachers have said, meditation, sitting on the cushion, is not a problem-solving session. We are not trying to solve our life problems sitting on the cushion. Sitting on the cushion, we're trying to avoid distraction, just to be clear, calm, undistracted. Nothing grabs us. Nothing takes us along for the ride. Now, probably that discipline of non-distraction will be greatly enhanced if you understand a lot more about fundamental Buddhist teachings. And the place to try to understand a lot more about fundamental Buddhist teachings is through hearing and contemplating. For me, I'm a great advocate of the notion that just meditating, it's good, but it's not enough, that for meditation to truly bear fruit, one has to combine it with a good understanding of Buddhist teachings. It's not just... Meditation is... It makes you feel better, but that's not really the point of it in the long run. And for meditation to truly bear its fruit, it needs to be combined with a good understanding of Buddhist teachings. That good understanding of Buddhist teachings comes through hearing and contemplation. No one has ever figured out the meaning of egolessness, how it applies to their own lives, or what nirvana is while they've been sitting because they've been doing something else. Uh, but hearing and contemplating goes a long way to uh, really make help our meditation bear fruit. Now, at this point, um, I think I have a little bit of time left. I don't know exactly what time we have to end this, but I think we have some time for a discussion and Q&A, right? So I'll leave it up to you to... Well, I have 10.38 here. Yeah. Okay, my watch says 10.38. Okay. I wondered what, um, the, what place listening to my daily, my moment-to-moment, well, not all the time, but listening to myself <laughs> and then noticing that, oh, this is doubt or this is... And if I do listen, and if I do take the time to contemplate, Mm -hmm. then I might have a better chance of staying in the Dharma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the question of listening to our self-talk, how much to listen to our self-talk, is a a good question. Because obviously our self-talk occurs, and it can seem, it can, one, get incessant, and it can also be very, very distracting. So I'd say the middle path between listening to it and taking it completely seriously. Because <laughs> lots of times their self-talk is, um, you know, neither here nor there. I, I don't mean self-talk in meditation. I mean it more... In daily life. As a, and in, as yeah, and that's grips what I, that's me. how I'm answering the question. Okay. Because in meditation, we don't listen to self-talk. It occurs. It occurs in meditation, but we don't say, oh, what's the next follow-up thought to that? Or, you know, even self-talk in meditation is much more regarded as potentially distracting. You had, a qu- you had your hand up. It was the first one up. I have a friend who is one of those opinionated senior members of the Sangha. <laughs> 
And I hear from him quite a bit that I am over-intellectualizing. And then I say to him, you are anti-intellectual. And he says, no, I'm not. (laughs) And we haven't come to terms with that. He says, just be. And I say, well, I'm curious. And how do you know when you're over-thinking or... You talk about contemplation. I think if you're really doing contemplation, you are not overly intellectual. If you're grasping for an answer, then you're overly intellectual. If you're trying to get the right formula, now I've got it, that's overly intellectual. You know, if you just inhale books to grasp the information, that's overly intellectual. But I wouldn't worry about, you know, I would just keep on working in a middle path, Middle path is always the guideline for whatever questions we have. Not too much, not too little. Middle path. So, uh, and you know, sometimes we have, I mean, I've, I've also, especially when you're a younger practitioner, most of us will run into quote-unquote elders who want to bring us up. And uh, I've had some very irritating ones in my life. Uh, that's pretty much all in the past now. Because um, you know, I don't, I don't particularly. I mean, they're no longer elders to me, for one thing. I've grown up, so you know. And I've never run into a good teacher who's too opinionated about anything. A good teacher is going to have a flexible, accommodating mind. Being too certain of anything is—they're probably not all that senior yet. They just like to think they are. Thank you. That's really a good insight uh, for me and my friend. <laughs> I hope your friend isn't here. He's not here. <laughs> good, then I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I remember this. I was at a meditation retreat. We had a very, one, actually one of these elders of mine who was in the same group meditation, pretty advanced Vajrayana stuff, and he had missed for various reasons. He wasn't there that year. And he always he always would dominate the entire space with a complicated question that no one could understand. And the teacher would try to, you know, work with him. And he, was not, he wasn't there one year. And she said, that sounds like a X question, a question X would ask. And then she said, isn't it a relief that he's not here? And then she said, well, he'll hear it on the tape. (laughs) Uh, I'm thinking about uh, nirvana and egolessness. And um, could you speak to... um, I was thinking there isn't any nirvana without egolessness. What? Can there be nirvana without egolessness? The tradition would say no. Um, it's, it's time for maybe one more question. It's 1044. Gloria back here, but... <laughs> you, were, you were what? I was saying hi to a friend of mine and oh. raised my hand. Um, but I, I did have a question earlier. You, you made a comment about you don't hold, and I think you've sort of answered it since, uh, you don't hold things, you don't agree, you don't disagree, uh, you used the example, I think, of multiple lives. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered if there was anything you could, more you could say about how you hold things in that regard. Well, I think it's a very useful dharmic attitude to hold. And um, 
I think it comes from a contemplation, from really investigating an issue and seeing how many ways there are to think about a specific issue and how many people have answered it and how many different ways. And you begin to see, well, how could one of those answers be right for everybody all the time? Maybe it would be better to have a more flexible mind on that particular issue. I think a good example, for example, is that you know people often say Buddhist is atheistic. Buddhism is not atheistic. It's non-theistic. We certainly don't affirm the existence of a supreme being, but since there's no evidence for such a thing, we simply let it be. Well, if you want, if it helps you, go for it. You know, and in the, in the, if you read the Pali texts, it can be confusing to people because in the Pali texts, the Buddha is talking to the local devas, the local gods, who live in the heavens of the 33. He has, you know, he converses with them all the time. So, you know, there's a certain way in which deities do figure into Buddhism, but there's no notion of a, uh, of a, supreme being who created the world or who confers or denies salvation on individuals. Whether we become enlightened is up to us. It's not up to the Buddha. So it's now 10.46, so I think we should close. Do you dedicate the merit after talks or not? By this merit, having attained omniscience and defeated the enemy of wrongdoing, may I free all beings from the oceans of existence with its tumultuous waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. So thank you very much for your attentiveness. I'll let the local leaders take us on from here. I guess I'm available here for a little while. Uh, and you can come and look at these books in case you're interested in them. Thank you very much. You've been a very large and a very easy audience to work with. It's been very pleasant. So thank you.